This morning's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you, Allison, for reading that wonderful passage from Ephesians 2. This morning, we're going to jump into a new eight-week series, as I mentioned last week, and we're going to be talking for the next uh, eight weeks about the, some of the foundational vision elements of Christ our Redeemer. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks talking about grace, that is our glorious foundation, then we'll talk about uh, grow, that second G. Uh, which is our our constant exhortation. And then uh, after that, we'll talk about groups for a couple of weeks, um, which is our primary organization. And then we'll talk about go for a couple of weeks, which is our... um, uh, I've lost the... uh, Somebody's got to know the second part of that one. Orientation. Is that right? Orientation. Okay. Our our, uh, something orientation. There's an adjective there. Um, that goes before orientation. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to spend the next eight weeks making sure that we don't forget. (laughs) And after eight weeks, uh, hopefully we'll all be able to recite those. Uh, This has been from Christ our Redeemer, uh, from the very founding of Christ our Redeemer, as I understand it. I have not been here since then, obviously. Uh, But but this has been uh, four of the pillars that this church has been built up on, all underneath the, 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 um, the Word of God as our, uh, as our standard. The Word of God shapes everything that we do. The Word of God is, is the way that we know God because we don't know God unless He reveals Himself to us, and that's what He's done in His Word to us. And then as we look at His Word, this is what Christ our Redeemer said 15 or so years ago. He said, these are four things that are 
absolutely integral to our church as we move forward. So these first two weeks, what we want to talk about is uh, this idea of grace, grace as our uh, glorious foundation, grace as our glorious foundation. What does that mean? And here's how I'm going to divide up these two weeks, just so you know where we're going. This week, we're going to focus on grace and how it works itself out in our lives as individuals, as in each of our lives as we come to the body of Christ, and as we come together each week, how grace has transformed our lives and what that grace results in in our lives. And then next week, I want to focus on grace in our life as a community, as a body. And we'll talk about grace as it forms us together in our worship and in our time together and in binding us together and giving us goals as a community. Um, So this week, we're going to look at grace as it pertains to us, each of us, as individuals, as transformed people, as people who are called to be transformed only by God's grace. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this is an interesting passage, and as you open it up, if you see uh, the beginning of the passage on the screen or in your Bible, or you, you look at some of the headings maybe in your Bible there, uh, you may be thinking... Well, I've usually only, if I've ever heard this passage preached on, I've only heard it preached on in the context of giving, money. It's a a giving passage, and it is. And here's what I want us to look at this morning. This is not primarily a sermon about giving or about money, even though it does encompass that because that's part of our response to grace. This is primarily a sermon about grace. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 have, have uh, one of the, the biggest concentrations of that Greek word for grace, charis. The, almost nowhere else in the New Testament will you find su- such frequent uses of the word charis. Ten times it shows up in just these two chapters. In, the, in these chapters that, that, that we think of as, as giving uh, chapters. But it's all about God's grace. The deepest point of these two chapters is about God's grace. And we're just going to read a, a section here. Before I, I read our, our primary text, which is uh, from verses 6 to 15 in chapter 9, uh, I want to read just a short section from chapter 8 as well. And I want to give you just a little bit of context. See, see, Paul is writing, this is the second letter to the Corinthians that we have. There is perhaps a third letter to the Corinthians that, that came in between the first two letters of the Corinthians, but we don't have it. Paul references it. Uh, it could have been uh, uh, before 2 Corinthians and after 1 Corinthians. We don't know exactly when it was written, but this is the second letter that we have. And Paul has an ongoing relationship with this group of people. And in the first letter, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you notice that this is a messy church. This is a church that, that struggles with all sorts of, of difficult uh, uh, sins and, and, and even sufferings. And Paul is calling them back to the gospel over and over. And specifically, he's calling them to the gospel of strength that is found only in weakness. What looks to the world like weakness 
is really the power of the gospel. And in doing this, Paul turns the values of the world on their head. And so in 2 Corinthians, uh, what's happened is, from the best, the best that we can tell from what Paul's saying, is that he's responding to the church as they've started to wander away from seeing him as an authoritative apostle. They've, they've started to look to other people. And Paul spends much of 2 Corinthians talking about how, how in his own life, Strength is found in weakness. And his apostleship is even shown in weakness. And then he comes to chapters 8 and 9, and all of it's been about this way that they've attached themselves to worldly values. They've sought things that look powerful and strong and good by the world's standards. And Paul is saying over and over and over again, the world's standards are not what you live by anymore. If you've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're now under a different set of standards. That now strength is shown forth in what looks like weakness to the world. And this is when he writes these two chapters about a struggling church in Jerusalem, a church that's struggling with poverty, struggling to get by, they're oppressed, they're marginalized. And they're going through all sorts of different difficulties. And Paul begins by saying, your brothers and sisters just a little bit north of you in Macedonia, even though they have less than you do, they were radically generous in giving to the church in Jerusalem, in helping out their brothers and sisters. So he says that in the first few verses of chapter 8. And then he says uh, this. Let me read just a few verses from chapter 8 here, starting in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also generous or genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's that word grace, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Notice what he just said. Jesus was rich and became poor for you so that you, though you were poor, might become rich in him. He goes on, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. He says, a year ago you started to collect for the Jerusalem brothers and sisters, and then you stopped. You got tired. You decided that it wasn't worth it. You decided uh, it was too costly. I don't know what the motivation was. But they stopped. And Paul says, you need to keep going. And that's uh, where we get to in uh, chapter 9, verses 6. Um, if if we, we can put that back up on the screen, Prina. I've finally gotten to our passage for this morning. Chapter 9, verse 6. Verses 6 to 15, this is God's word. And as we come to it, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, we are in desperate need of you, of your grace. I pray that you would help us to see your grace here, to, to see how your grace is the only foundation that we can build our lives on. And Lord, help us to see how your grace shapes and changes us. 
in the name of Jesus, the very one whose work has, has given us this grace by your Spirit from the Father. Amen. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I want to begin as we look at this passage, by looking at that last verse, we're going to work backwards just a little bit. Take a few minutes to look at this last verse, this inexpressible gift. Paul can't find words to describe the gift that has been given. When we look at the word grace, in Greek, it's interesting, this word grace can be used for a variety of different things. It's translated grace most often in the New Testament, but it also has, within its range of meaning, the idea of gift, of giving. And Paul looks at the grace of God, and he shouts out, after working out some of the implications of the grace of God in our life, he can't help but shouting out, in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That word right there is not the word charis, it's not the word grace, but it's another word for gift in Greek. It's the same sort of idea. It fits in with what he's been talking about. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, something that's inexpressible is, again, something we can't find words for. It's something that's indescribable. So as I worked on putting together a sermon for this passage, it almost felt self-defeating to even think about putting together a sermon for this passage because Paul himself describes this gift as indescribable. So what I'm not going to try and do is describe God's grace to you, to myself. But what I am going to do is I want to put some words to why this gift is indescribable that makes sense. Put some words to why, what makes this gift inexpressible, unable to even be put into words. And we can find a few different ways, many different ways probably. I've chosen three different ways that we could think about this grace being indescribable or this gift being indescribable. And the first is this, that it's got an indescribable motivation. 
that the motivation for God's giving is indescribable. And that's why I had Allison read this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. If you keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, uh, or sorry, 2 Corinthians for me, and, and flip over, if you have your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 2, what we just read. And Prina, if we have that slide for Ephesians chapter 2, we could put it uh, on the screen. This is Paul writing to another church, church in Ephesus, and he, and, and he said these powerful words to them. It, it, when we think about why did God give us the gift of his grace, the answer that we find is we don't know. Look how Ephesians chapter 2 describes us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked or once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't know that Paul could find stronger language to describe us. We're dead. But not just dead, dead because of our own rebellion, following the wrong way, trying to clean things up ourselves, and just making ourselves dirtier in the process putting our trust in all the wrong things, absolutely helpless. Why did God save people like this? And here's the answer God gives, or Paul gives, God through Paul. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, All doesn't point to some motivation in God that has to do with anything outside of God. Paul points to who God is. And Paul knows that who God is is utterly indescribable. And when he puts words to it, the only way we can understand it is this idea of mercy. His rich mercy and grace and love. He is rich in mercy and he has great love with which he has loved us. God's motivation in giving us this gift of grace was never about anything that we have done. God's motivation is purely found in him. It's only in him. It's only in who he is, his mercy and his love to us. And it's almost as if after describing all of this, it should make sense to us. But Paul goes back just to make sure that we've got the point in verse 8. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. If you missed the point earlier, you're dead. God did this only because of himself. 
Paul reassures you that there's nothing that you've done to earn this. Paul reassures you that you couldn't do it. It's a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is indescribable motivation because we as human beings can't describe God. He's beyond us. His love, his mercy, his his justice, his goodness, his grace is far more than we could ever put words to. And that's why this gift is indescribable because because it's motivated by the indescribable God. But not only is it motivated in an indescribable way, but the gift is indescribable because of the content of the actual gift itself. The actual gift is indescribable, and this is why. Because in God's gift to us, in God's gift to me and to you, friends, the gift is God himself. The gift is the giver. And the giver is the gift. Now, if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably, in our own hearts, say that we would prefer a different gift. We'd prefer for the gift to be forgiveness of what we've done. Or we'd prefer for the gift to be redemption or salvation, and it is those things. Those things are a part of the gift, but they're not the content, the fundamental content of the gift itself. I took a a class in D.C. this past week, actually, on on Islam. And uh, Mona Siddiqui, who's a a Muslim scholar at the University of Edinburgh, describes the difference between Islam and Christianity. In her words, the, the fundamental difference, this is from a Muslim scholar, The fundamental difference is that the goal of Christianity is communion with God. And in Islam, that's just, that's not a category. The goal in Islam is not communion with God, it's it's our status before God. it's, It's seeing God as a judge who at the final day will weigh our works and there's, and there's, a lot of nuance to the, to the Muslim beliefs there, but, but, the, but when it comes down to it, it's not about communion with God. And, and I would say that, that anything outside of Christianity, all that's offered by this world, and, 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 and even in our own hearts often, we don't really want communion with God. Because what communion with God means What communion with God means is that he is always with us. He is always there. That me and my struggle with sin and and suffering and mess, that I've got a holy God who's chosen to be with me. And that is terrifying. David actually describes this very frustration in Psalm 139, the famous psalm where he says, where, where can I go to get away from your presence? Notice, notice how he asks that. Where can I go to flee from your presence? 
It's almost as if he wants to flee from God's presence. Where can I go to get away from you? The highest heights can't get away. The deepest part of the ocean, I can't get away. Can't go anywhere to get away from you, God. As Christians, we believe that God has not just given us forgiveness or redemption or salvation or something outside of himself. He has given us those things, but he's only given us those things for the purpose of communion with him. And here, friends, is why that's good news and not bad news. It's because it's what you were created for. And our hearts are so bent on independence. But that's not who we are. God made us in his image as dependent creatures. We want independence so badly. We want our idea of freedom so badly. But that's not what God made us for. Augustine famously describes it, the early church father in the 4th century or 5th century, he talks about the fact that his heart is restless until he finds rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, God. That all this desire for independence, for freedom, all it will bring us to is restlessness, and it will not bring us to what we were created for, which is communion with God. God wants to have a relationship with us. Friends, when we come to the gospel, this is what we believe. We believe that we don't just get benefits from God, but we get God himself. And that that is good beyond description. The gift is indescribable. That it's in our acknowledging our own dependence and need of him that we find true life and rest. The gift is indescribable in its motivation. It's indescribable in its content, but it's also indescribable in its effects on us. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time. It's indescribable in its effects, its results. And here we need to understand some of the context of Corinthian culture at the time. See, gift-giving was a part of the culture in this city of Corinth. And in, in the, the way that the culture worked, it was a little bit different than how we view gifts. And so gift-giving uh, functioned within the economic and social system of Corinth. So gift-giving, uh, it wasn't just sort of, there wasn't a category for spontaneous gift-giving like we do at, at Christmas or on a birthday or that sort of thing, not necessarily expecting something in return. Uh, but, but gifts were only giving, given in the context of sort of an exchange of goods. So if uh, if a more powerful person gave a gift to a less powerful person in society, it was in exchange for their loyalty or their votes. If a less powerful person gave a gift to a more powerful person, it was exchange, in exchange for uh, uh, status, in exchange for uh, being able to build up one's uh, status in society. Uh, there's actually a resident of Corinth, and we don't have... It's not like there are um, 
many inscriptions that we could go back and that, that have been uncovered in archaeology that we could go back and say, oh, this happened right around the time when Paul was writing to this city and we found this inscription in this city. Uh, there's actually one that we found in Corinth from that very time that Paul was writing. Uh, a, a lady named Junia Theodora was apparently a powerful person, resident of Corinth. Uh, and, and there's an inscription, a long inscription written about her gift giving, praising her. It's an example of this idea that gift giving functioned within this social and economic system where I give gifts and I receive back something. Some sort of status, some sort of um, elevation in society. Now, in our own culture, we like the idea that we would be able to give a pure gift that we expect nothing in return, but, but the, if we're honest, we, we usually feel obligated to give something in return when someone gives us a gift. Uh, and Prina, could you pull up that slide for me? Uh, this is a, actually a cartoon from the New Yorker years ago. I don't know if you can read it. Uh, this is a couple leaving a dinner party. And it says, sorry, the text is a little smaller. It says this, since we don't do payback dinners, how does 80 bucks sound for the reasonably decent evening I think we've all had? Even in our society, which, which, which has a little bit more of a, a, a place for this idea of a pure gift that I don't expect something in return, the reality is we usually feel obligated when someone does give us a gift still. Okay, so, so that's one issue with God's gift to us. Does it create an obligation in us? It, it, but there's also sort of a difficult logic of gift, gift giving, and that's that when we receive a gift, there's all of a sudden a power dynamic in the relationship. So, so when we receive a gift, a lot of times it, it, it's almost as if we owe something to the other person or as if we, we now, that person has some sort of, uh, of advantage over us. This would have especially been the case in Corinth. There was an obligation and there was a, a, a power dynamic now in the relationship. I'm reading the novel uh, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. Uh, and it's the first time I've read it. I'm not done with it, so if you've read it, don't spoil it for me. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in which she uh, she finds herself saying to her husband that I've been crushed by your generosity, and he's he's been. The idea is he's been benevolent to her in a situation in which she. Um, egregiously um, did some things that, that were sins against him, and, he, and, she, and his forgiveness, when he comes around, uh, she says it's, it crushes her. She can't live with him anymore because she's crushed by his generosity. Gifts can do that in an interesting way. But in the case of this gift, here's what Paul's doing. He's turning the culture on his head like he's been doing throughout the, the letter. He, does, he says this. Um, first of all, that, that, that when God doesn't give, or, or that God doesn't give so that we give something in return. It's not that the gift doesn't create obligations for us. But God doesn't give so that 
he gets a gift from us in return. In fact, if you think about it, there's nothing that you can give to God that would enrich him in any way. He's already got all the wealth of the world, all the happiness of the world. He is the one who created it all. He's the source of it all. We couldn't give a gift to him that would help him out. So there's, so there's nothing that we could give back to him, which, which may make us feel as if we're perpetually at a disadvantage, that he, that he as the gift giver now has us under obligation, or, or maybe it's even a, 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 almost like, well, now if I can't give anything back to God, am I now just a slave to him? Here's what I want you to see. That God's gifts don't disadvantage you or lessen you. That we actually exist because of God's gifts. And that submission to God and to his gifts is the only actual way that we can find dignity. That when I admit the fact that I am utterly dependent on the gift of somebody else, that it's not me who creates my salvation, it's not me who, who, who finds my way, it's not me who has some sort of independence, but when I admit the fact that I was created by and for someone else to be dependent on them, that's when I actually find my dignity. That is the opposite of what our culture says. We say that dignity is found in independence and in living out my best life or living out my ideals, but we don't find it in submission. In the Bible's logic, we only exist because of God's gifts and recognizing our our dependence on him is actually the path to dignity. So in response, if we are going to be a community that's formed by this grace, what are we going to look like? And just quickly, I want to think for just a moment about what we're going to look like as a community if we are truly a community that has been built on this foundation of God's grace alone, that we bring nothing to the table but the gift that God has given us, and really a double gift that God has given us, not only in creating us, but also in rescuing us, in redeeming us, in bringing us to himself even when we rebelled. And there are just a few ways, I think, that, that, that we will look radically different if we believe this. And, and I'm just going to run through these very quickly. Uh, first, we're going to be a community of dependence and faith. We will be a community of dependence and faith. Unlike the kinds of gift-giving in Corinth at the time, Paul lays out an entirely different attitude toward gift-giving uh, for the Corinthians. If you look at, uh, at chapter 8, verse 15 if you have your Bible, uh, it says this. Paul appeals to a, a story from the Exodus, from way back in the time where the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and he says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. What is this a story of? It's a story of manna. It's a story of manna in Exodus chapter 16. And, and Paul appeals to this. He says that just as in the wilderness... 
you were utterly dependent. God's people were utterly dependent on him. Nobody had enough without God. It's not like uh, they got out into the middle of the wilderness and they were hungry and somebody said, oh, I brought a bunch of manna. We can all share with it. No, God sent it from above. And what Paul shows is that, that it's not that is not what we bring to the table. And, and, and friends, this is where we are a culture of achievers. And achievement is not necessarily a bad thing, but we identify by being achievers. And, and if we're honest, we look at our own situation and we look at all of these things that we bring to the table. Our job, our expertise, our money, our homes, our abilities. And what Paul's saying is that if, if you are truly honest and you look at God and and who he is, then you don't bring any of that to the table. God does. That even those things that we think that we bring to the table uh, in our community, that it's all dependent on God in the first place. That every gift is from him in the first place. So for a community that's, that's built on this foundation of grace, then that's what we're going to recognize in our lives together. That every gift originates with him and is utterly dependent on him. That there aren't some of us that are better than others because of our achievements. That there aren't some of us that are better than others because society looks at the things that we've done and approves. That achievers aren't better than beggars in this community but that we were all in this community not fundamentally achievers, but receivers. We are receivers of God's grace. This dependence is shown in our faith. Friends, even our faith is a gift from God. If you try and find the way to faith or try and turn faith into something that's, that's, that's a work that I can do myself, then we've turned it into just another work trying to, to earn our way to God. Faith in the Bible is, is described as the instrument by which we grab hold of God's grace. That it's all God's grace to us. And even that faith by which we, we grab hold of God's grace, even that is a gift. Even that is a grace. Even that doesn't start with us, but it starts with God. Our faith is an expression of the fact that we exist so that the infinite God can dwell in us and work through us for the well-being of the whole creation, as one theologian puts it. So we're going to be a community of dependence and faith. We're also going to be a community of gratitude, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. So I'm going to not spend any time on that this morning, but we'll be a community of gratitude and worship where we will respond to God giving thanks, just as Paul has done here. But finally, we'll be a community of generosity. Generosity. Paul says in this passage that the Macedonians, those people who who he points to as an example to the Corinthians, who gave gifts generously out of their poverty, he says they gave beyond their ability. How can anyone give beyond their ability? Isn't that by definition impossible? Not in God's economy. Because Paul says... That when we come to the transforming grace of God, 
Power is found in weakness. I used to identify by what I achieved, and now I identify by what I've received. There's no place for social stratification. There's no place for racism. There's no place for treating some as less than others because of money or any sort of social distinction that we might make. There's no place for that in the gospel because we are all receivers of God's grace, friends. So if we're a a community built on the transforming grace, the inexpressible, indescribable grace of God, and if we truly believe that, we'll be a community of radically different relationships, relationships where we are sharing and in hospitality and willing to give beyond our ability because of what God has given to us. This is not a cheap grace. It's a costly grace. It costs the Son of God his very life. How could we think it's going to cost us less? Friends, let us, as a community of believers built on the foundation of God's glorious grace, let us learn to be a community of gratitude, a community of dependence and faith, We don't hold on to the things that we have done, but we hold on to what God has given us and let us learn to be a community of generosity together. The next two weeks, we're going to continue to talk about, next week we'll talk about how this forms us as a body and, and maybe some ways that we can, in our worship, recognize our dependence on God, recognize our faith and our need of him, and act in community, and then, and then in ways that go out into our broader community as a church, transformed by grace in radical ways. And then, and then the following week, we'll talk about how this leads us to growth, to growth as a community. But let us pray before we sing our final song together. Lord God, your grace is overwhelming. It's inexpressible. It's indescribable. We can't put words to it. Lord, I pray that you would Change us and shape us, both as individuals and as a community. Help us to be radically generous people. Lord, we can't do that in our own power. We can't give beyond our ability. Lord, all we could do is just try to, uh, uh, to approximate it. But Lord, you transform us in such a way that we are able to give our very selves because you have given your very self for us. Lord, help us to know what that means. Help us to grow in what that means and help us to cling to you, Jesus Christ, in every way. Thank you for your inexpressible gift. Amen.